What is your favorite holiday? I love Christmas. Love the warmth and the light of a season of cold and darkness. I love time with family and friends. I love the sugar overload, to be honest. But I find Christmas too commercialized. It's, it's complicated. It's a little too hectic for my taking. It's definitely too messy in our place. I love Easter, but Easter breakfast outreach and preparing and delivering a sermon, Easter is just exhausting for me. I love it, but it's tiring. My favorite is Thanksgiving. The calendar is uncluttered. Yard work is finished for the winter. The cold temperatures beckon us indoors. There's wonderful food. There's time with family and friends. And a little bit of football doesn't hurt today at all in my thinking. Simple pleasures. A day to rest and to reflect. A day to render thanks to God for His grace and His provision. A time to stop and give thanks for one another and for Him. I love that. What's your favorite holiday? One thing is for certain about holidays, and that's that we like them. Generally speaking, they can be a source of pain for some. They can be a tremendous challenge at times. But overall, as human beings, we love holidays. At least we like the day off, the day off of work, the day off of school, the break. Holidays are really precious to us and many times a source of rich remembrances. They provide a vital break in routine, recurring times to rest and refresh, enriching our souls with the stabilizing force of tradition. God created us to work but He also created us to rest. And He created us to find refreshing joy in holiday, in break, in festival, whatever word we put with it. God programmed the universe to serve as an environment for holiday. Genesis 1, verse 14, God said, "...let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night." And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, the emphasis of the text, to cast light upon the world. But He also created them, we notice here, for signs and for seasons. God did not intend signs and seasons to serve as nothing more than a monotonous tracking of time's passage. Another month, another year, we see it again, we mark it down, that's the end of it. What are the signs and the seasons for? Why does He give them to us? As the Bible unfolds, we learn that marking seasons enables us to marshal time to use it for sanctifying purpose, to enjoy recurring days of rest and refreshment for the revitalization of body and spirit. 
God calibrates His creation to this end. As we return today to our journey through Leviticus in chapter 23, we have seen ritual purity laws touching every aspect of Israel's life. Holiness laws were essential in the approach to the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt among His people. But there were also food laws. There were laws regarding bodily fluids. There are laws that we find here about skin conditions, even mold in homes. Every aspect of life was calibrated to think about the holiness of God, to perceive it in everyday life, to never forget about our sinfulness, our need to be cleansed as we enter into the presence of God, and of His purity, and of His grace in inviting us into His presence. So we've considered in this journey through Leviticus... Holy space, sacred space at the tabernacle in our approach to God. We've considered holy sacrifices and holy people, holy priests and a holy nation. Ritual and moral purity is woven into the warp and woof of Israel's everyday life at every level. But it's at chapter 23, there's been one little hint before this, but it's at chapter 23 that we come to consider holy time. Holy time. If time permitted this morning, we'd look at chapters 23 through 25 because they hold together in a distinct unit. You remember the discussion on holiness, 18, 19, and 20, and how 18 and 20 hold 19 up in the emphasis upon holiness. We have something of the like going on here with 23, 24, and 25. Chapter 24 is elevated and held up for us to see, and we won't even look at it today. But it's all heading somewhere. We just enter into, we stick our toe today into this issue of holy time, of sacred time. In Leviticus 23, we will see that God orders seven Sabbaths, seven festivals or holy days on which Israel is to rest from labor, refresh her soul in God, and reflect on His works of redemption. As we return to the drama of Leviticus, which channels us to specific conclusions about God's redemptive plan, we take up the matter here of holy time. It begins verse 1 of Leviticus 23 and following with Sabbath. First, the introduction here in the first two verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, common marker here throughout the book of divisions, speaking, communicating His truth at the foot of Mount Sinai to the people, to Moses. And He says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, that you shall proclaim as holy convocations, they are my appointed feast. They will be recurring. You will know when they come by seeing the heavenly bodies as that indicate signs and seasons. And as it comes, you will know that there are these unique days of convocation. First of all, the word feast. This translation has a little bit too much taste to it. Uh, Not all of the holy days involved meals as such, but perhaps a better word than would be festival. 
Uh, we're taking feasts here not so much in just the literal sense, but in a more figurative sense or general sense of a festival, a time of stopping the normal course of life and considering the events of the holiday. Holy convocations. A convocation can refer to the calling together of an assembly. But here the word has the idea of a holy announcement. It may not be a gathering together of the people depending on the direction of the feast, but it is an announcement to say this is a special time. A special sacred time in Israel. Verse 3, six days. Here's number one. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. A day of solemn rest. That doesn't mean somber, unsmiling, and woeful, but it means carefully observed. Even probably the phrase indicates setting aside the normal things that you would do at home. Many of the duties that would just be typical of every day. This is a solemn occasion. It's an occasion you really are paying attention to this break in everyday routine. So think of this. Every seven days, the Israelites were to stop their daily routine and occupations. No work in the fields. No tending of cattle beyond the what was just absolutely necessary. This wasn't a time to repair the roof. It wasn't a time to clean the floors. Sabbath was a day to stop, to rest, to refresh, and to do so in a worshipful way, knowing that God is giving to Israel this day, one in seven, every seventh day a break. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you go about work. It orients every week of Israel's life to think about God and His holiness in this sacred time of Sabbath. Now the Sabbath principle was established at creation when God rested on day seven and hallowed the only day on which He made nothing, including it not as six creative days, but in a sense as seven, even though on that day He does nothing, He hallows that day. And so Sabbath is established there. And it, it points us then in the creative week, it points the people of God to the Lord as the source of our soul's rest. He rested, in a sense, inviting all of His creation to rest in Him. Having said that, not wanting to minimize that, having said that, there is no mention of Sabbath-keeping in the creative narrative and there is no indication that Adam and Eve observed Sabbath. I wouldn't argue that they did not, but there's no indication that they did. Abraham, when did he observe Sabbath? Isaac, Jacob, what's the narrative where these patriarchs of Israel observed Sabbath? It's not there. The biblical record indicates that it is here, at the foot of Mount Sinai, that God established Sabbath observance as a sign of His covenant with Israel. 
So although a day of rest was integral to creation and to its understanding, the Sabbath observance was a requirement unique to Israel under the Old Covenant. Indeed, the Sabbath observance pointed forward to its fulfillment under the prophesied New Covenant. We'll return to that, Lord willing, in a moment. Keep that thought in mind. The Sabbath observance pointed forward to its fulfillment under the prophesied New Covenant. But from Mount Sinai to that future fulfillment, Sabbath was to be observed and God was to be honored on that day. And for generation after generation, century after century, people stopped at day seven. And they reflected. There's such intriguing study here, historically. You study the history of time, it's fascinating. I've only stuck my toe in it, but there's a lot there. Just for instance, the Babylonians. Did the Babylonians follow a seven-day routine? It's amazing that they did, and it's amazing why. They didn't work on of the month, a 30-day month perceived. They didn't work on day 7. They didn't work on day 14. They didn't work on day 19. They didn't work on day 21, and they didn't work on day 28. Those of you who've done the math test there, you're going, 19, how does that fit in, right? But they, all the sevens, they don't meet, and they don't meet 19. Why 19? Because the month before, add 19 days is 49, which is 7 times 7. That's really a day you don't work. And you know why they didn't work? Because those days were unlucky. The universe would be against you if you work on these days. It's bad luck. Stay home. Disaster awaits you if you go into the field on day 19 or day 21. You see the beauty of God's law coming down in the midst of such thinking. And we could go on and on with accounts of how people looked at time. For Israel, it wasn't unlucky. This was the best day of the week. This was the holiday of all holidays with Sabbath. This was a day you stopped all of your work, not to avoid the bad luck of the universe, but to stand in the presence of God as a family, as a community, and to rejoice in Him. That was it. All the festivals to follow in this chapter are properly called Sabbaths, and they are calibrated to the Sabbath principle. In fact, there are seven festivals... The seventh month is heavy with holy days. Every seventh year was a sabbatical year of release, for instance, for slaves, and there were other aspects of it. And then on the seven times seven thing, after 49 years, on that next year, the 50th year, was a year of jubilee. So the structure, writes one author, brings a Sabbath feel to the entire year and thus a constant reminder of the covenant the Sabbath signifies. All of time was saturated in Sabbath concept for Israel. And it all started right here, every week, one day, the seventh day of rest. In all of the dwelling places of Israel, festival of Passover and unleavened bread follows then in verse 4. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month 
on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. We're not going to go in at all back into the sacrifices. We have looked at them through the book of Leviticus. I'm not going to go into the specific rituals that are involved here, but we see the marking out of this unique time known as Passover. It marks God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery, as we're probably familiar. The emphasis is on redemption through the substitutionary sacrifice of a lamb. It's no coincidence we realize as the book of Leviticus continues to steer us to conclusions, it's no coincidence that Jesus died on Passover. As Passover lambs are being slaughtered at the temple area because of the way it was arranged in the context of that day, Jesus eats the Passover meal the day before, and while those lambs are being slain on Passover Friday, Jesus dies. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John says in 129. And Paul even more explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. This Passover deliverance from Egypt is pointing forward to the ultimate deliverance in Christ. We come at verse 9 to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now, how does that work? How do you bring the sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest? where Israel is right now. They don't, of course, but it's when you come into the land. Just a simple reminder of the sovereign power of God. I'm taking you to the promised land. You're not anywhere close right now in location, but you will come there. I will bring you in. This is the land that I have given to you. And as you come to that land, you will raise crops. And you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. This would have been the barley harvest. And notice what they are to do, verse 11. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. What's the day after the Sabbath? That's Sunday. It's the first day of the week. He will wave it. An offering of thanksgiving symbolizing the anticipation and dedication of the harvest to follow. The festival took place at Passover on the day after Sabbath, that is, this first day of the week. Again, as the Bible points us and directs us, how are we to think about God's saving purposes? As we learn about this festival in the book of Leviticus, it points us unmistakably to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's that unleavened bread that Jesus rises from the dead. 
on that Sunday. He was indeed, in a sense, the sheaf being waved to say, this is the first fruits of the resurrection. There's much more to come. Others will rise in Christ to eternal life. He dies on Passover. He rises from the dead on unleavened bread. Verse 12, On that day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasant aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. You can probably see in the marginal note the sizes of those measures. They're, they're not known to us specifically. But And also, just always remember, a drink offering isn't something you consume, but something you pour out. And verse 14, you shall eat neither bread nor grain parched or or, or fresh until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. That is, the harvest was first to be dedicated to God, and then, and only then, could it be harvested and eaten. How different Israel is yet again. How unique in her holiness. The pagans manipulated the gods to get them to produce a a grain crop. Israel thanked God in anticipation of the crop that was to be harvested. She rested in His providential care. She took this break, this holiday, this festival to say the harvest will come. Verse 15 the festival of weeks or Pentecost. Verse 15, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. So again, the day after the Sabbath, starting on the first day of the week, unique stoppage on this Sunday. And you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. This, of course, isn't the same harvest. This is the wheat harvest. So from the day after Passover Sabbath to the day after seven times seven days, day 50, on that Sunday, they were to offer the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Jesus dies on Passover He rises from the dead on unleavened bread. And what does He do on the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost? He pours out His Spirit. The risen Christ visits His people on this day. Verse 17, You shall bring from your dwelling place two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams, they shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs, a year old, as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave with them the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs, They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. 
and you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. God's people coming together. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statue forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And oh, how much we miss. Now, we're not there, but get there. Go in the middle of it. See the tradition of it. Understand that all are taking this day off. And acknowledging before the Lord the harvest that is to come. Verse 22, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourn. An amazing note here. We've seen it before. But what we see here is in the midst of her worship, she was to remember the poor. She was to remember those that were needy around them. And they were to love their neighbor as they love themselves. On this day, we find the closing phrase, I am the Lord your God. And there is a, a distinct separation there between uh, what we see here and what is to come, which are now the fall festivals. What we've looked at are the spring festivals. And we come now to the fall festivals and the Feast of Trumpets. Verse 23, so you'll notice there as you get down to the end of the chapter, the I am the Lord phrase will repeat again at the end of the fall festivals. Here's the first, the Feast of Trumpets. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work and you shall present a food offering to the Lord, the Feast of Trumpets. Dry, hot summer is now past. The festival marks the end of the harvest season. At this time, Israelites would seek the winter rains to enrich the soils and to nurture the winter wheat. It was a natural time of stoppage. Falling in the month Tishri, September, October. Don't think seventh month, our July. That's not the case, but in the way their calendar worked out, we're here in September, October, the new year of the civil calendar. And the blast of trumpets marked this new year. It's a theme. Read the rest of the New Testament. Consider the place of trumpets, and you've been helped. You've been helped to just see and to be steered with how trumpets have a place in God's Sovereign and redemptive plan. The Day of Atonement. We have considered this at great length in chapter 16, but it's of course added here in this guide to the festivals. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 26, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month in the Day of Atonement, it shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. What does afflict yourself mean? It doesn't beat yourself. It means you don't eat food. You set food aside and you fast on this day before the Lord. Verse 28, and you shall do, not do any work on that very day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted, whoever is not fasting on this very day, shall be cut off from his people. And I, we would assume there's some exceptions to that. But they would come under the discipline of the Lord. Verse 30, and whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. Nobody worked. You shall not do any work. 
It is a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath, a solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening. From evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. Remembering the significance of this day, the entire tabernacle area, ultimately temple area, is in a sense flushed of all human sin. This very elaborate ritual to cleanse the nation, to cleanse the place of worship from here going forward. If you worked on that day, your heart was so cold, it was so against God that He just took you out. You needed to be removed from Israel. Nobody worked. This was the day of atonement. This was a somber festival as people thought of only their sin and the cost of its removal. The Feast of Booths, however, follows in such a different way. Feast of Booths, verse 33, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. The weather was mild and dry, The grape harvest, the olives, the dates, the fruit trees were all harvested. It was time when Israel would have stores of the happiest produce of the land of milk and honey. It was a time when she was called to remember her tenting journey, the journey she's in right now. She's going to come to the promised land and they're going to remember that they tented their way across the wilderness until they came to this promised rest that God intended. Time to recall the deliverance from Egypt. It was an anticipatory time. Now intense, but soon in homes. And so even when they got to the promised land and they had their own homes and they had the peace and the security of it, they go out in tents for a week just to remember what it was like. Those of you who never ever camp, I pity you. You really ought to try it sometime. You'll look forward to coming home, I guarantee you. You look forward to it in kind of a new way, and that's what's going on here with Israel. Verse 35, on the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do, you should not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. The food offering is offered to God We don't have all of the details here, but much eating and feasting is taking place as you tent for a week. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, drink offerings, each on its proper day besides the Lord's Sabbath and besides your gifts and besides all your vow offerings and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. Everything's going to come to a stop and you're going to think about your walk with God. In a unique way, you're going to rest in me 39, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy 
trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, tents, tabernacles. Why? That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. This feast of tabernacles. What a joy it had to be. And we can even look with a little bit of envy to Jews today who celebrate this festival. These booths, they're sukkah, sukkahs, sukkoth, sukkos. There's different names for it, but from the Hebrew word of tent or booth. And throughout the world, Israelites continue to gather here. I mean, it's sad in one sense that they don't see the fulfillment of it, but just as a little cultural lesson here, we might take a look at, these are just pictures of Sukkot, of the booths, or sukkah as they're often called. Uh, just simple structures set out in the backyard by Jews to this day. You see in the bottom right corner the, the, the uh, camping uh, set up. They're going to sleep there. So they eat inside the booth and they sleep inside the booth. And they can get kind of elaborate. We talked here in the text in uh, verse 40 of the branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook thrown up as a covering over them. Obviously, there's uh, some flexibility here with materials in, in this day, and here's some more backyard booths of Jews to this day. What really gets interesting is when you get in tight quarters. What do you do then? That really gets fun. Uh, they'll put them up anywhere. And, I mean, anywhere. Uh, just attaching them to apartment buildings, even, just to fulfill this law. Isn't that a great picture? They're keeping the festival of booths. They don't have any yard. And you can't put it inside your house because that's in your house, but your balcony, that'll work. And they build these booths this day. You see this a lot in Chicago, New York, uh, to say nothing of Israel. You see them kind of sticking out there. That's not an expansion to the uh, apartment as such, at least not approved, but it is a booth in what is their yard. And if you really are in a hurry, you can even get one delivered. Set it in your backyard, you rent it for a week, and you send it home. It's real slick. But there's quite a world here in these booths. But put yourself back. I show this just to kind of get a sense of our, our setting culturally. But think of this in Israel. All of Israel in these tents saying, Remember. Remember what God's done. Remember the journey He's taken us on. Remember who we are. And when you're a family eating in that ridiculous little hut, and you're sometimes perhaps sleeping there overnight, and there's work to be done in this week, and there's Sabbath to be observed, but in all of it, in the give and flow, you're remembering through this tradition, this is who we are. This is who we are. This is what our God has done. As we think on this passage, what we're doing is filling our minds with certain facts 
from the Old Testament that feed our understanding of Christ in the New Testament. We've touched on a bit of that here today. We won't touch on much. But know that as we're understanding these lines, it's directing us to Christ and showing us what He has done. But it certainly raises some questions about our own life. Should we observe Sunday as the Christian Sabbath? There are those who would argue that it is really disobedience to God to work on a Sunday, even to play sports on a Sunday. They would argue that if you mowed the lawn on a Sunday, that would be breaking the law of God today because Sunday has become the Christian Sabbath. How do we understand that? All the festivals hinge on the Sabbath principle, which points to creation. Should we observe Sabbath then, perhaps on Saturday, but at least on Sunday, as we observe Sabbath? The Sabbath pointed back to creation, but here is one thing we must not forget. It also pointed forward to its fulfillment in the New Covenant. It pointed back to creation and to a principle that is there from the beginning, but it also pointed forward to its fulfillment. And Jesus is clearly the fulfillment to which Sabbath pointed. It's a bit interesting that some Christians will take this chapter and they will see clearly that Christ fulfilled Passover. And yet somehow they draw a distinction between Passover and Sabbath. Passover is a Sabbath. It's saturated in the Sabbath principle. So Jesus is the fulfillment to which Sabbath pointed. His Passover, at Passover, He dies. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At unleavened bread, He rises from the dead. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. And likewise, in the same way, Sabbath. We can't divide them there. In fact, what Jesus taught indicated this. Now, we need to remember that Jesus comes to earth as a son of David. And he fulfills the law. And so he observes Sabbath on some level. We know he got into a lot of troubles with the authorities and the way that he observes Sabbath. But we see the indications of where Jesus is leading as he will soon die and rise from the dead. And he says to his followers, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will give you Sabbath. In fact, as he gets into trouble by his disciples picking the heads off of some grain and rubbing it in their hands and eating it, they were free to do that. It wasn't stealing. It was part of the law. They were free to do that. But what they were breaking in people's minds was the law of Sabbath. You remember what Jesus says there? It's utterly shocking in the context. I am the source of your rest. I am your Sabbath, he says here. In the next chapter, Matthew 12, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Hmm. God is the giver of Sabbath. God is the Lord of Sabbath. And Jesus says, I am the Lord of Sabbath. Sabbath isn't this thing unto itself. The rest is in me, and I am the Lord. 
This is why the Apostle Paul can say something like this about Sabbath without blinking. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. It's impossible to know Paul's setting, his rabbinical thinking, his deep knowledge of the Old Testament and to think that that's just an accident that he says festival, new moon, and Sabbath. He's channeling here the law. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you with respect to the law, including Sabbath observance. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These are a shadow. Sabbath is a shadow of what is to come. Tom Schreiner rightly says this in response, the Sabbath as part of the Old Covenant is a shadow that points forward to the substance, which is Jesus Christ. As a shadow, it was never meant to be a permanent ordinance. Once the fullness arrived in Jesus Christ, the shadow falls away. So the rest in God which Sabbath promoted under the Old Covenant is now offered not in the observance of the Christian Sabbath Sunday, but it is observed, it is received in living fellowship with Jesus Christ. Jesus offers to us the long-anticipated rest under the New Covenant established not by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, but established by the blood of Jesus Himself. So Jesus offers to us the long-anticipated rest of the New Covenant. Participation in that rest comes not through observing a day. It comes through what? We read it earlier in Hebrews chapter 4. It comes through trust. It comes through faith. In the Lord, Israel fails to enter the rest of the promised land due to unbelief, and you will fail to enter God's rest if you do not place your trust in Christ for salvation. He is the fulfillment of Passover. He is the fulfillment of unleavened bread. He is the fulfillment of all of this system and Sabbath. And you'll have no rest in your soul until you come to know it. He is the rest of our soul. He is the fulfillment of it all. Sabbath observance highlighted hope that there could be fellowship with God in the promised land. That there would be a resting and a gathering in God's presence. And here's where I so want to go into chapter 24. But we get to chapter 24 and we see that there, in the presence of God, Israel is to rest and to rejoice, and to refresh. And they're to do so at this place and time through Sabbath observance in part. Jesus fulfilled the prospect of this old covenant. And so He ended Sabbath observance, which was the sign pointing to Him. Sabbath looked back to creation. The first day of the week looks back to the resurrection of Jesus and thus forward to the new creation in Christ. Why are we here today? Because on this day, Jesus defeated death. On this day, Pentecost, first day of the week, Jesus poured out His Spirit upon His people. 
On this day, we remember that Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the Sabbath, and rest is in Him. We come here today to rest, to say Christ is Lord. He's the fulfillment of it all. So, let's ask secondly then, does this mean gathering on the Lord's Day for worship is unnecessary for Christians? Maybe you were under the impression that you're coming here in obedience to God's call to observe Sabbath on now the first day of the week because of the fulfillment of Christ, and you're here because God demands it. What Leviticus teaches us is not that. But it teaches us that Sabbath by Sabbath entrance into the divine presence leads to sanctification. In the habit of worship, there is purification. That we do learn. And so we don't look ritualistically, we don't look legalistically as gathering on the Lord's Day, on this first day of the week, as the means of our salvation. But we gather on this first day of the week as a habit of worship, knowing that convocating together as God's people in the presence of a holy God, this is God's plan of sanctification for our lives. We gather on the Lord's day not because it is evil to gather on another day. Travel or move to Israel and gather with an evangelical group of people, you're going to find a hard time gathering on Sunday. It's going to be really, really difficult because people work on Sunday. That's the first day of the week. If you're going to be part of the culture, you're going to find that a challenging thing. We're not saying that the day itself is somehow absolutely essential to meet on that day, but to identify with Christ's redemptive work and fulfillment of Passover, His death, unleavened bread, His resurrection, and Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this is the day that is uniquely fitted to that. So if you'd say, well, I don't need to come on Sunday because it's not the Christian Sabbath, is the Lord's Supper unimportant because Jesus fulfilled Passover? And what Christian would ever say that? Well, he fulfilled Passover. We don't observe Passover anymore, but we do observe the Lord's Supper, and it's really, really important. Same thing here. We don't observe Sabbath because Christ fulfilled the Sabbath, but gathering as His people on the Lord's Day, remembering His resurrection power is really, really important. And we learn that from the Old Covenant. In fact, I would say that Leviticus 23, in light of Christ's fulfillment, would really call into question that Christian who just slips into church on Sunday if it works out. If there's not something better to do, I'll go. It certainly does not commend that Christian who thinks it's all about whether I like the church or don't like the church. And I come as a judge saying, oh, that, that kind of interested me, that didn't interest me, I don't like this about it, I wish they'd do this differently. I don't, I, that's scary thinking. Now, all of us are judging on some level as we identify with the church. Understood. But if we come in with a critical spirit, just all looking at it, how does it hit me? How do I feel? How do I like it or not like it? We've got it all wrong. This is a privilege. 
This gathering right here, you seated here, I standing here, people running around the back, and all of us that are here, Jesus purchased this. He bought this meeting with his blood. We're not here because we deserve to be here. We're not here because we can say we deserve to be the children of God and Jesus' followers. He bought you with his blood. If you've trusted him as your Savior, if he's indwelt you by his Spirit, you're here because he bought this meeting. You want to miss that? Because the grass is a little too long? Or in our time, there's a little ice on the driveway? you got something better to do. Why would we miss this gathering which hinges on the work of Christ at the center of history? Our Lord's Day gatherings purchased by Jesus are a privilege to set aside our normal routine to rest in Christ in community to say and announce that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why we're here. That's why we sing. That's why we gather around his word and why we work at it in some sense. Not simply seeking another venue of entertainment, but rather seeking Christ here. The habit and the routine itself sanctifies. We're learning that. God put the heavenly bodies there in part to help us mark time to use it, that time might be sanctified and used for our sanctification. So the habit, the routine of worship purifies. If you're going to come to church two days out of the year, that's way better than not coming at all. Come as much as you're going to come, but don't say, well, if I can't be here all the time, then I won't come at all. Come as much as you can get here. But if you're going to come two times a year, this gathering is not going to begin to accomplish what Christ wants to accomplish through it in your life. It has to be routine. It has to be ongoing. And there's times a sermon works for you and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's irritating and sometimes it's a blessing. And sometimes God's people are irritating and sometimes they're a blessing. Sometimes you like a service and sometimes you don't. Keep coming. Israel got out their little booth again and put it up for another year. Sometimes... The weather wasn't so nice and sometimes the food wasn't so good and sometimes they gathered in famine and it wasn't much of a party. But year after year after year, drip, drip, drip of God's blessing of rain spiritually upon our lives through the gathering of his people, he uses it to change us, to sanctify us. And that's why he says, Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't do that, but exhort one another. It doesn't say don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because you're breaking Sabbath. He says you are assembling as the body of Christ. Don't miss that. You can and you will and you'll have to. But don't make that a habit. 
You stand before Jesus. Are you going to be able to say, I had a habit of gathering with God's people in your name, identifying with you in this world? Or are you going to say, I had a habit of missing church? Should we observe Christian holidays as replacing Old Covenant festivals? Well, obviously the answer is the same. If it's not with Sabbath, then it's certainly not with the holidays. The New Testament nowhere prescribes such days. Romans 14 indicates it's proper to observe a day to remember Christ's birth, and it's proper to remember His death and His resurrection. We don't need to. But we must remember these, these are then not New Covenant observances. And so when it comes to Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving, don't impose them on others. I I always cringe when I hear grumpy Christians. We need to put Christ back in Christmas. I can guarantee you Jesus isn't elbowing His way into the equation going, come on, put me back into Christmas. We can observe Christmas. We can think about the birth of Christ. We don't need to. And Jesus isn't in heaven wringing His hands going, oh, how they've commercialized my birthday. I don't think He really cares about Christmas. I meant that. Observe it. Enjoy it. Remember it. May it be part of your tradition. Don't press it on someone else. Don't press it on your culture. And don't pretend that Jesus told you how to celebrate Christmas because he didn't. What Jesus said was, for those who are laboring and weary and empty, come to me and I will give you rest. I'm your Sabbath. I'm your holy day. Come to me. Rest in His redemptive work. Love God with all of your heart. Love your neighbor as you love yourself and you'll do just fine with Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and every other day of your life. Revel in the presence of God every day of the year knowing that He is our rest and knowing that we gather here in this place to rejoice in that truth. Enter His rest. As Hebrews 4 says, God had so many plans for Israel as He's sharing these festivals with them. I want you to take these festivals in your tents and I want you to work your way to the promised land. And there in that promised land, this tabernacle will become a temple. And there in that temple, my presence will reside. And you will gather at my temple on these holy days and you will rejoice in my presence in your rest in the promised land before me. And what did Israel say? We can do better a scary plan we don't like that plan we're not going to go into that promised land we're going to do things our way we're going to dance to our own song and our own tune you don't know what you're doing with us god what did god say they'll not enter my rest but as hebrews 4 says there remains a rest for us Is that rest deep within you? And do you take that rest with you into holidays and into everyday life? That rest is in Christ. And we're pointed there in this text. Let's stand together and stand in silence before the Lord for just a few moments as we reflect 
on Jesus Christ as our rest.